Hello and welcome to the Loop Ventures Brain Tech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Rainey, a research fellow in the Oxford Uehiro Center for Practical Ethics. In this show, we talk broadly about ethics in neuroscience, including issues faced by today's neuroprosthetics, the importance of multidisciplinary thinking in the field of neuroscience, and we finish by talking about the meaning of life, your typical nice light subject fair. And now, here is Dr. Stephen Rainey. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you've got a very interesting background, I think, as compared to most people that we talk to that are involved in neuroscience and AI, with a heavy influence from philosophy and a focus on ethics. So maybe to start, can you tell us just a little bit about your background and how you've come to work on BrainCom, which is developing a neuroprosthesis for speech? Well, my background is in philosophy. I did my undergraduate master's and PhD all in philosophy focusing mainly on the philosophy of language and how that relates to rationality. Over the years, I've worked in several postdoctoral positions, generally on emerging technologies and how to govern ethically technologies that we don't yet have. So how do we project forward into the future and anticipate reasonably things that we could expect to come from novel technologies? Um, most recently before BrainCom, I was in the Human Brain Project, which is a large European initiative to, well, it has a lot of aims, but among the aims are to produce neuromorphic technologies, so chips that mimic human brain functions and that sort of thing. And I moved to BrainCom then, which is much more focused on language. And BrainCom uh, itself is another European project, highly multidisciplinary European project, focusing on neuroprosthetics for speech. And these are really technologies that are designed to pick out linguistically relevant neural signals so that they can be externalized artificially. And that allows for people who have lost their ability to communicate, either through disease or injury, to have their speech or their communicative ability anyway restored. And so my philosophical background in all of this helps me to look at the concepts that are being used for speech and communication, for instance, to look at how the neural correlates of language are conceived of. So what we are recording when we do neural recordings, are we recording thoughts? Are we recording neural signals that correlate with speech patterns? Questions like that can arise. The major sort of framing for all of these questions come in terms of ethics. So in a very general sense, the ethics of this sort of project are about how users of neuroprosthetics can be really thought of as being in control of what they are producing as speech, given that this very mind-world relation is mediated through technology. And so to put that in a form of a question, is it something related to how someone who has a neural prosthesis is able to determine what is effectively shielded from the real world and what is shared from the real world in terms of what they're thinking about and saying? Yeah, because one of the ways in which the neuroprosthetics would be used, if you think of a sort of trigger, would be that we use covert speech in order to start the device, if you like. So whenever you think something very clearly in your head, very distinctly in your head, the same sorts of areas that would control overt speech light up, if you like, to a certain extent. You can use covert speech as a way to trigger a device that can decode the speech that would have been produced and then recreate that artificially. 
So in other words, whenever you think very clearly without actually articulating a sound, a machine can be used to produce what sound you would have made had you spoken that covert speech. So you can see the ethical issue there immediately arises. Well, how do you correctly differentiate between the private thought and intentional speech? Because as anyone's aware, sometimes a thought just occurs to you, just runs through your mind. And maybe if it runs through very clearly, well, would this machine pick it up? So that's a very direct sort of question that arises immediately from this sort of technology. I think that's a really important question, too, because we aren't always what we think necessarily. And I'm curious, as you were describing that, the process of how thought is formed, how much of today's technology, so things like social media, where you know some people seem to have a filter and maybe some don't, but how much of technology today can you sort of apply and how humans use that to the ethics as you build a neuroprosthesis for speech? Well, I mean, it's interesting because... As you say, there are all sorts of media that can be used to produce speech or at least verbal outputs, so including textual things in terms of Twitter and things like that, I suppose. Where the filter comes in, I guess, is that there's a causal process involved in any of these sorts of outputs. So with Twitter, for instance, you have the thought process, then you have the actual typing of a tweet, then you have the sending of the tweet, right? So you've got a kind of a process there. And at various stages of that, there is time to think and you can be rightly you know, accused of taking too long or being too quick. With speech, typically the causal process is a little harder to discern in the sense that when you have the thought and you speak, you don't typically differentiate the brain activity in the speech because it's so transparent to us as we speak. And it's true that you can sometimes find out what you really mean through speech. So you sort of say something and realize that that's really what you meant. You know, you can impress yourself with your own speech just as you can let yourself down when you misspeak and you realize you said something you didn't mean to. Whenever you have a neuroprosthetic for speech, you have a, a third thing. This causal process is more differentiable. So you have to use your brain to instigate a piece of neural activity that then triggers a device that then leads on to some software processing that is then fed into synthesizer device that then outputs speech. So you can see there you have kind of a causal process more like the sort of Twitter type social media thing. But the difference is that if you have a case where someone is unable to speak except through the device, then this causal process can be opaque to the listener, even though it could be quite laborious for the user. So you have this issue, this potential issue of, as you say, the filter. How does the filter come in? Who is in charge of deciding what has been verbalized correctly through the neuroprosthesis, the user or the listener or the device itself. And that's something that if you want to create a neuroprosthetic that allows you to speak, you know, in a normal pace, at a, at a conversational pace, then that's a real issue because speed becomes an issue. Something like Twitter, this doesn't really apply because the time isn't really necessarily relevant in the sense that you produce an output and it's there, it's just up and everyone can read it in their own time. But when you come to something like conversation, Time becomes quite relevant through things like prosody, you know, how quickly do you speak, how quickly do you react, and those sorts of associated ideas. It's interesting. I think parsing the internal dialogue or internal thought versus what you want to project externally reminds me a little bit of information theory and just the concept of noise, like noise in the signal of the message you're trying to transfer. Is that a good parallel, do you think, for that? Yeah, we're thinking of a couple of different concepts that relate to that. So... On the one hand, you've got a word like accuracy, right? The neuroprosthetic can be accurate in at least two ways. One of them in that it accurately 
records the neural activity, accurately decodes that activity and accurately makes an output. But that could still be inaccurate in a broader sense in terms of, say, authenticity to what the person wants to say. So if my brain activity happens to coincide with a certain phrase, let's say, Stephen is thirsty, and that is output as the correct sentence, Stephen is thirsty, nonetheless, it might be that I didn't want to say that. And so there's an inaccurate portrayal of what I wanted to say, even though the device has been impeccable in picking out that neural information and representing it. So we might call that sort of second sense authenticity. And the device can be accurate and yet inauthentic. And so you've got this question, as you say, about signal and noise. That's another good way to put it. And this can be seen as pervasive. So even technically, when the signals are being chosen, which signals are being recorded by the device? Well, at some point, we have to decide which bits are relevant, which bits aren't. And so that means you're looking into the neural activity and deciding that some of it is irrelevant and some of it not. That's a really tricky thing to do philosophically. If you imagine that if we're talking about neural correlates of speech and intention, those sorts of concepts, and yet we're just rejecting a lot of it in order to make the technical device more accurate in a technical sense. We've done some major work there and it requires real attention to detail. In fact, this is a good reason why philosophers and engineers and neuroscientists should all work together and have a kind of an interdisciplinary approach to these things, because it's too much for any one discipline to be able to decide that, you know, this bandwidth of neural activity represents speech that we're interested in. And so that's what we'll go with. That would be a very risky strategy, especially whenever all the rest of the technology development would hinge on that decision. So having these discussions across different disciplines helps to if not decide once and for all, come to a reasoned opinion about what is signal, what is noise. And that and then leads on to better technology because we have a better representation in terms of accuracy and in terms of authenticity when it comes to, in this case, the production of speech. I'd love to dig in a little bit to that idea of interdisciplinary function between you as sort of a philosopher and ethicist and some of the neuroscientists that are focused more on the technical application. In one of your blog posts from a year ago, you kind of talked a little bit about the promise of mapping the brain and, and some of the things that we're doing with BCI today, but also reminding us that it's very important to remember there's still a brain represented there. It's not just this map of neural circuitry. So as you think about how you are interacting with these neuroscientists, like how do you remind them of that fact? What is the interface between you and them? And also in inverse, you know, how do they influence how you think about ethics and what's sort of practical in terms of what they can do with the brain? We're really lucky in BrainCom because we have a kind of really good consortium where everyone really is interested in everyone else's work. It's not always the case. It can sometimes be pretty tricky to be a philosopher sort of dropped into a scientific environment. And for scientists, I think they're often, when they're dropped into a philosophical context, they just don't see the point. <laughs> they want to get on because they're more practical very often. But in BrainCom itself, everybody's kind of interested in hearing what everyone else has to say and taking on what they have to offer. So for instance, we've got in the works at the minute, we have an article on this kind of issue about covert speech that we just talked about. And we have neuroscientists, we have people who are working on the engineering dimensions of how to make an actual brain probe. And we have ourselves as philosophers all working together. And overall, what that does is produce something that's coherent across disciplines. And so it provides a real sort of stepping stone. So if you were at a consortium less fortunate than us, where there was a little more friction, this would work as a really good bridging document to allow you to see the sorts of things that philosophers and neuroscientists together can think about. I mean, in terms of 
what you were saying about the sort of brain map and I think the map not being the territory, that sort of thing. It is interesting because we have to think about practical issues when we're talking about an issue like neuroprosthetics for speech. In a way, that's a useful constraint for a philosopher. So we can often get quite interested in the minutiae and quite interested in the very abstract. And those are important things to be interested about as top-down concepts to help us frame how we look into things like speech and brain activity. But when we're in a context where we have someone, for instance, with locked-in syndrome, sort of hellish condition that represents where you're cognitively intact but completely physically paralyzed, that's an acute condition that needs to be addressed as soon as possible if we have the ability to address it. And so whenever we have this technology which offers this possibility, well, we have a useful constraint Then we need to look at which brain circuits represent which kinds of activity and how we can harness those to make useful therapeutic intervention. So as a philosophy, you're constrained then into this area where you, you say, right, well, we know that language is not exhausted by looking at the parts of the brain associated with the motor function of the articulators. But given that that is what we're going to be talking about in order to try and help these patients in dire circumstances, this gives us something to think about that's important. And so we can frame our philosophical investigations in terms of the scientific parameters that are presented and in terms of the medical conditions that are out there. And so that gives a sort of productive way to engage with science more generally. And as we as the philosophers talk about these constrained issues with the neuroscientists and with the engineering side of things, we can point out problems that may not occur to the science. So if you look at the scientific issues and you see them as scientific problems, when we reflect more broadly on terms of communication and authenticity, for instance, these might not be concepts that naturally arise in the scientific scenario. So we are able to then help broaden the general problematic of synthesizing speech into something about how someone communicates, which may seem like a kind of a subtle or a, maybe a very fine distinction. But if you put yourself in the position of someone who is offered a new communicative practice based on a technology, it would be better if that's been thought about at the start. And so the technology is developing in a, a groove that's founded in the idea of interpersonal communication rather than just founded in an idea of reproducing brain activity. So those sorts of interactions are really fruitful and really vital, I think, for, I was going to say, the effective um, development of the device, but also the ethical. It's important that the human doesn't drop out of this at any point, especially in a context of something like communication. Absolutely. Yeah, that give and take makes a lot of sense. Maybe just shifting gears slightly, I'd love to ask, how do you think about scaling the concept of ethics, whether it's for brain-computer interface-related technology or AI? Does the government need to be involved at some level, do you think, or can individual organizations sort of self-police? That's a, a really good sort of question. It's important to differentiate personal ethics and being a good person and those sorts of concepts from ethics in a more broad sense to do with a kind of a, an ethical governance or ethical regulation. I would hesitate to say the government should get involved, but that's not to say there shouldn't be some sort of governance over and above individual projects and individuals. So I've worked in the past on projects that aim to advise the European Commission on how to provide ethical governance for emerging technologies. And their approach was to produce things like white papers and advice and to set up bodies to advise funding bodies that provide a kind of a checklist for ethics that 
people who would apply for the funding have to fill out. So if you apply for a European funding at the minute under the Horizon 2020 instrument, as it's called, you'll have a sort of tick box, which is in some ways unsatisfactory. Ethics shouldn't be a tick box. But on the other hand, it is something that opens the applicant's eyes to the idea of ethics. And it can then lead on to quite creative instantiations of ethical policies within the research. And that sort of goes beyond simple things like ethical compliance. So we know there are ethical compliance issues to do with experimentation on animals or on humans. But these sorts of policies also want something a bit more reflective. So they ask of research consortia that they implement ethical reflexivity, for instance. In the case of BrainCom, we have that in that we as philosophers and ethicists are always present in every meeting. And we do have these ongoing conversations with the scientists and we publish together. So this means that we can demonstrate very clearly that at no point is the science done and then the ethics comes in and says whether it's good or bad. And we can show that we're not reducing it to a tick box where we say, now we've had the ethics people come in and read the work, so everything's fine. In the past, that's been the case. Maybe ethics has been seen in this way as a sort of a hoop to jump through. But these sort of nudges that can be given by policy bodies, typically then mediated through funding instruments, they can really help to implement ethics in quite interesting ways in research projects. The government interference, I mean, particularly with AI, or not interference, but regulation, I guess is a better word, I know has been a really popular topic, at least in the U.S., just, you know, with open AI and some of the things that Elon Musk has said about the dangers of AI, making them sort of public. But I think you make a good point of there are limitations and philosophical questions about how a governing body should sort of step in with some of these things. Especially in AI, sometimes governing bodies, like the European Commission or even national governments, they can overestimate the amount of fear there is in the public and they can sort of create a panic mm-hmm. about things that doesn't really exist. So at the minute, people are very worried about AI and the machines taking over and all that sort of stuff to do with singularity. There wasn't a real fear about that until there were reports that there was fears about that. <laughs> so it's sort of a self-generating thing. And it doesn't really bear much analysis, the idea of the singularity and the superintelligence and the idea that we're going to have a a paperclip maximizer that's going to destroy the universe. These things aren't really realistic. And so for a government or at least a high-level regulatory body to get involved in quite the way they have at the minute is a bit over the top. And it would have been better handled through lower-level, finer-grained conversations within research communities that can then be brought to those who aren't necessarily party to that research. So had more research projects, for instance, had better communication strategies or better communication outputs, the very idea of a panic over AI might never arisen in the first place. So there's a role for the ethics and all of that, but that can't necessarily be separated much from the communications efforts of research projects and of people who are really involved. That's a broader issue as well that goes beyond research and goes beyond ethics and goes beyond even particular subject areas. And that taps into stuff to do with journalism and to do with the way governance works. So in the UK, at the minute, the government has a particular interest in trying to restrict internet freedoms because it has a broader security agenda and it believes that the internet is a place where terrorism can flourish. And so they have these broader interests in regulating internet access. And so that then filters down into having policies about how internet access is regulated and how technology to do with the internet, like AI, cloud computing can be used. And so there are all these political agendas as well, which come from above. And those can be countered best through robust and well-informed public conversations. That requires media then and to be on board, and that requires good information. So that boils down to how projects 
dealing with this research in a primary sense can communicate themselves and how they can communicate the ethical stances they've taken in their research. So there's a whole sort of complex there, which is constantly, you know, warping and it's quite dynamic in different directions. But at the core of that is the research itself and the ethics, I think, because it has a strong responsibility to communicate realistically what's really happening and what really could come from the research that goes on. I have two last questions, and maybe just while we're on the topic of AI, I'll, I'll start with the harder, or at least what I think is the harder of the two. And so one of the questions that we sort of think about frequently and talk about as it relates to AI is if robots sort of replace human work, people always ask what then becomes the meaning of life? Obviously, it's a deep question. If it's something that you haven't thought that much about, we can certainly skip it. But just as a philosopher, how do you think about that sort of existential question about the meaning tied to work and how robots play into that? Well, there's some interesting ideas about why it is that we think that work is so valuable to ourselves in some existential sense. Some people chalk it up to a Protestant work ethic. So there's a sense in which you have to justify your existence and work is the primary means of doing that. And there's other senses in which you know, labor is the way you relate to nature as a human being. So there's a homo faber kind of idea, the human being as the maker. And the way that one influences nature is fundamental to what we are as human beings. And again, there are other sorts of theories that propose, so theories of property, for instance. Um, how do we account for the fact that we have stuff? And at a fundamental level, these theories of property would be that property is what you find in the world that you modify for your own use, that is yours. So you've got these sort of fundamental, very basic senses in which we account for ourselves as having meaning through this sort of justify your existence sense. You've got other senses in which it's how we are part of nature and yet we're kind of apart, we're the makers, and how we account for how we can own things in the first place and therefore acquire stuff. All the sort of senses in which self-expression come into that. Again, these are sorts of thoughts that attach to this idea of ourselves being replaced by robots. But this seems in some ways kind of misguided because we're all sort of aware of these futuristic Star Trek futures where, you know, there's no work to do anymore. So we're all free and we have leisure time. That's the sort of thing I think people expect to happen from robotic labor. But it's clearly not forthcoming. We sort of have the sense that if the replacement wholesale of all the workforce tomorrow by robots, we'd all just be much worse off and someone would get very rich. So there's a sense in which a replacement of labor with capital, if you like, won't lead to the sort of nice utopia that we've been led to believe in fiction, but it will be a problem that we have to deal with. And so this boils down to politics in the sense that we need to think about who has the power to do these things and why would they come about. For instance, lately, there's so much talk about self-driving cars, but there's less talk about carless cities. And these are political decisions. Why are we talking about one thing and not the other? It actually sort of boils down to some of the ethical approaches that you take in research, once again, because often we are presented with an idea of technology as inevitable. Once we've had a development, we think about, well, what's the next development? And this is based on an idea of linear innovation. So we expect one thing to build on the next. But it's quite possible that we can imagine without contradiction a, a society that gets to some level of development and is happy with that and doesn't do much more. That's not contradictory. So although we don't have to then be Luddites and say that we shun technology, we should be able to have conversations about what it does mean to have what we have and why we want to develop in the ways we want to develop. And those are big conversations. And I suppose to sum up, <laughs> you could say that the fears of artificial intelligence are, ought to be about 
natural stupidity. I think that's been said before, but we have to be more worried about our own natural stupidity than we do about the artificial intelligence that we're going to create, because that's where the problems are going to arise. I agree 100%. And that's a really good perspective to sort of leave our audience with. Stephen, last question, a quick one, is what do you think is the best book or your favorite book to read to learn more about ethics as it pertains to whether it's BCI or AI? Well, I mean, the, the sort of classic primer in this sort of thing is Patricia Churchland's Neuroethics. It's not directly necessarily about BCI, but it gives you this broadest perspective. She's a pioneer in this, about how neuroscience and philosophy combine and in, in her eyes, how they ought to combine. It's really groundbreaking and you can gain insight into so much stuff at a fundamental level that you can then get a good handle on where you want to go next for yourself. It asks and answers the sorts of questions like, well, how does philosophy and neuroscience fit together? Is philosophy of neuroscience just philosophy of science applied to neuroscience? Should philosophy of neuroscience be always critical of neuroscience? What can neuroscience learn from philosophy and vice versa? So these are fundamental questions that can then inform any understanding of any future BCI. So that's a real go-to that would be worth looking at for sure. As a philosopher, I can't help liking Kant. So I'd always recommend everyone should read The Critique of Pure Reason, but then that's a horrible thing to recommend to anybody. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough read, but it's a great read. Yeah, if you can get through it. Well, we'll add those to the show notes. And those are all of our questions for today. Dr. Stephen Rainey, thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. 